On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. Welcome back to another episode of Raising Rare. I'm really excited about this one because when Sonneth and I met two years ago, he had just received the diagnosis of the missense mutation in Raghav's GPX4 gene. He didn't know much then. He was just starting to learn and trying to figure out how do we get towards treatments and he had lots of questions. Actually, today we're going to talk about some of the research that's been underway to study Raghav's condition and all the progress that Sonneth has made here. Before we get started, I just remembered, when, when is Raghav's birthday? It was a couple of weeks ago. So he's already three years old. I just cannot believe that. Yeah, that's just, I mean, time flies, especially when you're as busy as you've been. But even me kind of like watching that from the outside, it's like, wow, he's three already. He was one year old when we first met. And so it's just amazing. We've got a lot to cover today. And in fact, we probably have multiple episodes that'll come out of this because it's a long journey. But I want to go back to something you had put out there long ago that's been guiding you, the roadmap. Developed it to guide you and give way to communicate to researchers what's happening. Can you remind our listeners of that roadmap and, and how it's guiding you? In the, we, we held a conference of all GPX for researchers and others who are interested in finding a treatment for this disease. And as a result of the conference, we created a roadmap that has been guiding our research and development in, in, in so far. And the roadmap is pretty simple. We said we do not want Raghav or any other patients with this disease to go without a treatment even for a day after this conference. And that means that we don't have the luxury of waiting 10 years to get a new drug Build, we have to start with what's already available in the market. So we got Rago started on several supplements that we thought could help. We definitely know would not hurt. And the next step was to start him on an experimental medication, which we did back in 2020. And he has been on the experimental medication since then, uh, but that has not shown a lot of improvements. Along the way, we also started what is called a high-throughput drug screen or drug repurposing. And the idea is that we would comb through all of uh, a big panel of FDA-approved drugs to find ones that could potentially work for Raghav. And so that's the, that's the whole drug repurposing part of the roadmap, which continues to pan out. And I think it will be panning out for the next several months at this point. In parallel, we are also building a gene replacement therapy for this condition, which is, just to put it in, uh, in layman's terms, it's, it's replacing a faulty gene with a good one. That work, obviously, as, uh, it sounds simple, but there's a lot more complications behind the scenes 
because we are creating a brand new drug from scratch for a brand new target that has never been explored for a disease that barely has 10 patients. You know, in, when I was in industry, um, we didn't call the work you're doing the repurposing work. We didn't call it repurposing, but we were always looking for new indications for our existing drugs. Because once you've shown that they're biologically active, you've shown that they're relatively safe, you understand the safety profile, you know how to make it, you understand everything. To do another clinical trial in a, a related condition or sometimes an unrelated condition, it was a much shorter pathway. And we were trying to add value to the products that we had out there. You wanted to, to do that. But from your standpoint, you're looking at it the other way. You're saying, I've got a disease and I've got a kid with a disease and I need to find a drug out there that might work. I think it's same sides of the, or two sides of the same coin, um, but yours is really patient-centric. I mean, really thinking patient-wise, it's like, what do we get for Regav? How do we do that? But how do you go about finding the ones that might work? What, what's the way you look at that panel of approved products? So we start with what the scientists call an assay. An assay is simply an experiment designed in a way to reveal the, the true potential of a drug. Um, and the assay generally is focused on revealing the, 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 the disease in its raw form, right? And so when you, when you throw the drug into the assay, it tells you through, through recovery whether the drug works on this disease or not. We currently have an assay that's using cells rag of skin cells. Um, and the assay essentially goes about letting the cells proliferate and look at the rate at which the cells proliferate. Uh, because we know that rag of cells divide and grow much slower than control cells. And in this case, you've used my skin cells as control cells. And that, that's a very simple assay. But through this process of repurposing, I realized that there's a lot more nuances that we have to control for in the assay development phase. And so the first step is to develop an assay that is robust enough to capture good drugs that could have a benefit and also robust enough to weed out noise, which is bad drugs that might just show up in the assay but never really work in humans. Uh, and so that's the first step. And that step took us a while. We had the fibroblasts made, I would say, uh, early 2020, and they were available for shipment to a lot of people quickly. And then a research lab had to work on observing the fibroblasts, uh, sorry, in, in this case, the fibroblasts are the skin cells, right? They had to work on, on developing an assay with the fibroblasts, which they were able to do pretty quickly, fortunately for us, because the cell growth rate was starkly different. And so once we had the assay developed, we contracted with Charles River Labs to do a high-throughput drug screen for us. They created a panel of 4,000 to 5,000 FDA-approved or phase one molecules. So these molecules have been exposed to humans in the past. So we do have some safety data on them, although it's questionable the, the amount of safety data you have on a phase one drug. And also there are cancer drugs in these, or anti-cancer drugs or carcinogenic agents in these panels that obviously don't have a safety profile that I would like to give to Raka ever. Right. No, mm -hmm. Regardless, we, we created this panel. We used uh, a library from, uh, that the Broad Institute has had put together. There's a whole paper written about 
how to create these panels of, of repurposing drugs. There's a lot of considerations that go in there, including doing quality assessments on individual drugs or the suppliers that you would procure the drugs from. Because apparently what this paper found out was that you could have a supplier that claims to have 99.999% purity, but then if you get it, it's like 60% pure and everything else is impurities. Or it has certain impurities that mm. wouldn't make it soluble or reactive. And so there are a lot of other variables that, has, that have to be controlled for when you develop the library. And so fortunately for us, the Broad Institute had already developed this repurposing library. So we started using that as our library for screening in the fibroblast assays. Uh, once we had these two elements, then the next step was to actually do the experiment. Yeah. So again, going back to industry and how we did this, we're coming from the other end and we had access to millions of, of, of molecules, literally millions. And when I started at Pfizer, my first project was numbered 80,000 something. And, and it was a big deal when we got to 100,000 because all the systems had to have another digit. When I finished at Pfizer, we were around seven and a half million in our library. And we had to come up with ways of, of running these assays very quickly. And we were doing something different. It, it's different, but it's the same. We weren't looking for a drug that will work. We were looking for something that showed a hint of what we wanted to see, you know, something that showed a little biochemical activity in the right uh, reaction, the right type of thing we were looking at. We weren't using cells from one person. We were using literally miniature test tubes micro test to tiny, tiny little things, but we were just looking for hits. If you found a hit, then you could take your chemist could take over and say, let's learn about that molecule. What does it look like? Can we make something similar? Can we optimize it? That's where you get into the 10 to 15 year path because you're, you're going from something that's just a hint to a brand new molecule that takes years to, to find and develop and, and select. You're taking a shorter path. You're, you're trying to say, okay, do we have something there that shows that it works? It could end up being you know, a bigger program where you look for new molecules. What you're hoping for is that there's one that's already out there that could show some benefit. So in the industry terminology, right, you, you, you identify a hit and then you, you, you get to a lead and then you do a whole bunch of lead optimization and then you get to the clinic. And right now I'm, not, I'm short-circuiting the hit process. I'm directly going to lead. You're going to leads, yeah. Um, you may get some hits in there that will need to be developed into leads. And actually, mm -hmm. there's steps between leads and clinic. You're going to have multiple leads, and you're going to have to pick the best one somehow or, or the best couple to say, what can we learn about it? Because as we know, and this is where you run into the same thing that, that companies do, because it worked in a, in a high throughput screen does not mean it's going to work, you know, in people, which actually, so you said you're using fibroblasts, which are cells that are easily grown, they're skin cells, but how did you collect those cells? What did that take? Back in 2019, right after Raghav's diagnosis, I knew that the first thing I needed to do was to get some cells from him. But the challenge was that to do any research work on human subjects, you need what is called an institutional review board approval. This process started after the World War II, where uh, I forgot the name of the trial, but basically German scientists, trials. the German scientists had done bad things to human people. And so they uh, were put on a trial 
And as a result of it, came out this new institutional review board that reviews every protocol that you do from a research standpoint on human subjects. And that includes getting cells and testing on cells as well. It took us a while to get the right IRB because I didn't know back then that you could actually go to an IRB and write a protocol and get them approved. We were misinformed and we were waiting for a hospital to do it, which obviously will never happen. But anyway, long story short, we finally got an IRB. And then the process was quite simple. We had contracted with a biorepository to convert his skin to, this, to these fibroblast cells. We went into a, a dermatologist that took a skin biopsy, dropped it into a package and shipped it over to this biorepository that then created these fibroblasts and stored it and started distributing it to, to people that were requesting them. So that process, once we got the IRB, was very straightforward and very cheap. Yeah. Once you get there, once you figure out the, the, the way to do it, it, it's not about the science so much, but there's a lot of protections for people. And it's not something that, that institutions do all the time. Hospitals don't mm -hmm. just say, oh, sure, we'll do a skin biopsy for you. It, it's a little more, more controlled than that. So now that you've got the cells, what are the assays looking for? What, what a, you know, go a little geeky here. What is the biochemistry you're looking at? When we got rack of cells um, and we started, the first thing that anybody does with the fibroblast is grow them. Actually, even before we got to the fibroblast, we had trouble creating them. So the biorepository, after they got rack of skin biopsy, could not differentiate the skins into these fibroblast cells because they just wouldn't grow. So we had to do a second biopsy in Raga because we, the first biopsy, like basically we wasted all of the skin cells trying to differentiate them into fibroblasts using the existing protocols. It turns out that we have to add vitamin E to the cells to make them grow. And that was an observation from one of our research science collaborators because they had to do that when they were working with cells that did not have GPX4. And so in this, the, the background is that vitamin E is one of the potent antioxidants that is inherently used as, as a defense against reactive oxygen species in the body. And so GPX4 is also catalyzing a process that will go uh, scavenge and reduce the reactive oxygen species. And so vitamin E will act as a, as a supplement to GPX4 in, in a normal day-to-day -day setting. But when you do not have GPX4, you need a high dose of vitamin E for uh, the cells to even proliferate. And so that was the first observation we had, which led us to giving vitamin E to my son. Um, I was going to say, I hope that, that your doctors connected the dots there and said, well, let's put them on vitamin E supplements because that's something you can do. And just for listeners, react oxygen species are we used to call them oxygen radicals, but it's oxygen that just goes in and just creates damage to cells in, in many different ways. And it turns into an inflammatory response or it stops the functioning of, of certain enzymes. And so it's something that your body is, is tuned to get rid of, but it's tuned through your nutrition. If you don't eat the right things, if you don't take the right vitamins, have the right vitamins on board, they can just go crazy in your body and, and you see all sorts of downsides to it that's really mm -hmm. cool though because you in doing the fibroblast growing you learn something actually we got ragov started on vitamin e even before the fibroblast this was an observation in the papers 
that if you give high dose of vitamin E to, to mice without GPX4, they, they have extended survival for longer. So we got him started on vitamin E like four, four weeks after his diagnosis. So that was very quick. And then we got to the fiber bus. Interestingly enough, there is a paper that talks about very high doses of vitamin E that promotes cancer in these GPX4 knockout situations. And the idea is that reactive oxygen species is also in, necessary for signaling and inflammation, right? And so if you suppress that quite a bit, you get the opposite effect of, of a lot more proliferation and like lowered immune response, which eventually leads to cancer. Uh, but that's a side, side note and, and completely unrelated to the high throughput screening, but I thought that was cool. But listen to you, Mr. Biology Professor, you're starting to link all these things together. And that's, I think, the challenge that you face is life in the biological, life in biological terms is all about balance. There, it's very finely tuned. And if you have too much of a good thing, it becomes a bad thing. And if you don't have enough of the good thing, it becomes a bad thing. So you're constantly on that razor's edge. Raghav, clearly, you know, needed more vitamin E to compensate for GPX-4. But as you said, if you have too much, you could be knocking out those, those oxidative species, which actually are protective. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's such a fine balance, which just complicates the whole picture. Every time you find something, you're playing with the balance, a homeostasis, as it's called. And so, great, we found something that might work, but what, what else does it knock out of balance? I'm just fascinated that you've had to like bootstrap this and, and get this all set up. I love that you talked about Charles River and how they've, and the Broad Institute, how they've, you know, partnered with you. You had a library of compounds to use, you know, how much did it cost just in general terms? To get this all set up and and how did you how did you overcome that yeah so i was resistant to paying the cost early on um because i i i have this mental model of garbage in garbage out so if if i the ingredients that i put into the high throughput screening if they're garbage i'm going to get, get garbage out so i did not want to choose the high throughput screening path for a while until i knew that the ingredients that i put in were reasonably okay or that I don't have uh, any other choice but to take the garbage and work with it because I've exhausted all the higher quality options at this point. And so I did not start a high throughput screening until I would say mid-2020, until, until we had a reasonably good assay, we had some confidence in the assay, and that we can go execute on a high throughput screen from the Broad Library. The cost, I can't give you specific numbers, but in, it's, in the, it's in the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, that's cheap. <laughs> um, in my, I mean, in, in, in my opinion, I, I try to control the cost quite a bit, but turns out you actually have, should pay for things that, that add value. For example, there was a step in this process that was all about assay development, right? Like, like once Charles Schubert got our cells and we gave them the protocol to say, here's how you, you should use the cells, they went into a long process of, of a lot of controls and testing to make sure they precisely understood and tuned the assay for a high throughput experiment. I thought that was a waste. I said, you know, well, someone else has developed the assay. Why, why do you need to go through this tuning process? 
but regardless, I paid for it, and that that, in my opinion, was the more expensive part of the of the of the entire budget. And I am super glad I paid for it because now I see the value of of that exp- of that step, right? And and going back to the garbage in, garbage out, I was throwing more garbage in. Their the tuning process was making it less of a garbage. You know, it's again a contrast with what industry would do. So an industry was we need to get through millions fast. So we didn't actually mind if things were mixed or if there was garbage in any of those things because we were looking for anything that worked. We could analyze what was in that, you know, six microliters of liquid later. If we saw a hit, we could say, well, let's look and see what's in there. And then you could do kind of a screen of, you know, the five things that were in there. And I remember when the uh, brilliant scientist, his name was Rob Spencer, came up with this idea. Everybody looked at him and said, well, that's just going to be garbage in, garbage out. And he said, no, it's just a way to multiply how quickly we can go. But we had all the resources to do the post-testing, which you don't mm-hmm. have and you don't need. You're, you're talking about four or 5,000 compounds that they get looked at. You can look at them individually and make them as pure as possible because you want to know, you know, does this thing work or not? And we don't have we don't have a lot of time to go back and redo the assay again and and keep keep refining and reiterating right we get, we have one shot at this so we we have to get this right if not we go home and so I I really like that part and it gave me a different appreciation for for science and give it give me an appreciation for how complicated of 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 um, how complicated even simple experiments can be like to give you an example. In the calibration phase, in the fine-tuning phase, they were looking at variability between the edge of the plate and the center of the plate. So the idea is that you have a plate, it has a lot of little wells in them. I think this is like a 1532-well plate. I forgot the number. But then apparently, there will be variability between in growth rates or, or sort of any properties between the edge of the, of the plate because they're less crowded and the centers of the plate because they're more crowded. And so they had the control for that variability even before we started an assay. And they knew that, okay, you know, interplate variability was wrong, intraplate variability was, was less, intraplate variability was also less, so we're good to go. And that was fascinating. It's the fun and the drudgery of science. When you start to think about what are the variables I need to control and you start to do that and you realize I can do this in a way where I know what the answer should be a, almost a mechanical way. And I can test variables like that. And you get it all set up before you go and run the expensive experiment, which is we're going to use the drugs now. We're going to run them through the assay. And so you spend sometimes years developing the assay because you want the screen to, to be valid the first time you do it. It's like your software engineering or other engineering. You've got to, you've got to look at all those variables and the what ifs. You know, what if, what if the temperature is different in the room? Would that really change things? Yeah. So, so here's my problem. Um, and this is where I think AI could help. So the problem is that if we start tweaking all but one variable, right, you can only go so far because you have to control for everything else except one, which is the one that you are really trying to find a difference in. But imagine a situation where you can control all but two variables suddenly you have an exponential growth in, in your ability to deliver because you know one variable, if it, if it has five possibilities 
and two variables will have five times five possibilities, right? You have 25 possibilities that you can explore with one experiment rather than five possibilities. And that's massive, right? What the problem is getting from that one to two essentially means that you have to tolerate a lot more noise yeah. in your data. And you cannot do that with pen and paper Excel sheets anymore because you are going suddenly into a multidimensional space of problems, right? Because you have tens of thousands of variables that, are that could change. You've tried to control for most of them except two, but you're not sure if you, if you let out, there was, if, if you forgot a variable to control. So by definition, you're actually, trying, you're actually having more than two variables that, you're trying, that, that, are not, that are uncontrolled, which means you suddenly need to have a lot of data to show that the background, or separate the background from the signal. Uh, and that's where AI could come and help quite a bit. But I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm yet to find, I haven't done my research yet, but I'm really interested in finding if anyone's looking into that part of the problem, because that could allow science to suddenly go super linear. Well, and that's what Rob Spencer did. So he would actually have overlapping plates. So getting kind of technical here, but you'd have multiple compounds in every single well. And all, and you'd, but you'd have different mixes of compounds in them as well. It was kind of like the, the, you always had that five variables in there every time. And it just was, it was lightning fast because you only had to run one-fifth as many plates and you got a lot more information. And you started to get information about combinations that you never would have found before, which is kind of like finding Bitcoin. You know, it's, it's mining for Bitcoin. You, you, boy, if you find it, there's a puzzle there and, and you've got to solve it. Well, this is like, great, we found it. Now, how do we free it? What's in there? So you're onto something. What's interesting is AI wasn't such a thing back then. It, it really was just data crunching and, and people mm -hmm. looking at, you know, for a hit and understanding it um, where AI you know, may be able to find those things for you even faster because you don't have somebody crunching the numbers and, and thinking so much about it. It's just pulling out the important ones. Yeah, AI doesn't have to solve or, or discover drugs. I, I don't think, I mean, there is a whole group of people that are looking at AI for drug, drug repurposing, like using AI to discover drugs. I think AI should just control noise. And if it can, if it can tell background from signal, that's huge, right? And for example, with every plate that was sold by a particular manufacturer, if they had data on all the experiments that were run on the plate, like all the experiments, right? And that, you know, if you, if you, if you take and normalize across a bunch of uncorrelated experiments, you're going to separate out. You, what you get by collecting all the data is background noise. Mm -hmm. And anything else that's, that comes out of a particular experiment would be signal. That's the theory, obviously. But there's more math to be developed. There's more statistics to be developed. And there is more computing to be developed. So I, I don't know if anyone's looking at this, but you know, obviously this would be a good business, oh, business oh, they're opportunity. They're looking at it. <laughs> they're looking at it <laughs> because it's it it's that powerful. It's just you right. can't. It's too attractive to to companies that are trying to move more quickly and and learn more. I want to ask you a question here, kind of as we're wrapping up time, and this will lead us into some other episodes. But what's the plan after you find some leads? Oh, that's the hard work. 
Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare. (laughs) 